from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Well, hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us here. We are doing our, what we do every once in a while, we do a cross-pollination on our YouTube channel with our podcast. So yeah. Anybody who's a regular listener of our podcast and you're just hearing this through the regular podcast channels, come check us out on YouTube. This episode will be in video form. And if you are watching us on our YouTube channel, go check out the link below in the description to our... Ask Christopher West podcast. There it is. Hosted by Wendy West. Hosted by my beloved. Here I am. So we do this every once in a while, a little cross-pollination of the podcast and the YouTube channel. Wherever you're joining us, thank you for joining us. If you're new and hearing our podcast for the first time, Wendy and I like to do a little banting back and forth at the beginning (laughs) about just mundane, normal family life things and stuff we're dealing with. Could be as random as what I'm about to share. (laughs) Go for it. Go for it, Christopher. I was on the phone today with the airlines and they're driving me batty i know i am traveling to lisbon portugal at the beginning of august for world youth day as you know wendy Mm -hmm. and to get a round trip flight from philly to lisbon Mm -hmm. four thousand dollars if i fly from philly to charlotte north carolina okay and then get on a flight from Charlotte, North Carolina to Lisbon. Yeah. Through Philadelphia. It's going to stop in Philadelphia. Which is going to put me on the very same flight. The $4,000? It was $4,000. Okay. $1,600. So somebody explain the logic of this no. to me. Round trip from Philly, $4,000. Same flight. Yeah. Costing the airlines more. To get me to Charlotte. Yeah. And then Charlotte back to Philly. Yeah. And then Philly to Lisbon. Why do I have to go down to Charlotte to save myself $2,400? I don't know. I don't either. That is so frustrating. And we've, I've dealt with that with the airlines for years with other, just weird, weird, stupid things. I don't know if it's algorithms or computers, whatever. It sets the pricing for whatever yeah. these stu- stupid, stupid. I'm so sorry. It's so stupid. <laughs> But it's for a good cause, right? You are going, do our listeners even know about oh, I don't World know. Youth Day? Yeah, yeah. I'm headed, we've been invited to do our Made for More event uh-huh. in World Youth Day. And we're doing like three, how many are we doing, Juan? Are we doing like, because you're coming. Juan is our YouTube producer. For those who are listening on the podcast, you're like, who's Juan? <laughs> Why is Juan on the podcast? Uh, I think we're doing like three Made for More events. In, yeah in two days and a couple other things. How many times up. have you presented at a World Youth Day? Uh, I, the first time was in 08 in Sydney. I remember and that. And then 2012, was it, in Madrid? Uh-huh. And then this is the third time. Wonderful. But it's interesting, in all the travels I do, almost inevitably somebody comes up and says, I saw you in World Youth Day, and mm. that really blessed me, and that you know changed my life in this way or that way. So it these are very fruitful events because people come from around the world, yeah. concentrated in one spot, and then right. they, they take what they learned back to all 
corners of the world. So. Kind of reminds me of the Feast of Pentecost we just celebrated, yeah. where Jews from all over the place had gathered in Jerusalem. Good point, my love. Holy Spirit came down and out it went. So, new Pentecost, Lord. Yeah. Let it be. If anybody out there can explain the stupidity of the airlines to me, <laughs> please send it in to our podcast and let us know. So do you have any updates on other work of the TOB Institute going I on? I do indeed. This is a, a last-minute uh, invitation for anybody who might live in Denmark or Sweden or the surrounding countries. I will be giving a talk outside of, how do you say it in Denmarkian? <laughs> Danish? Danish. Uh, my Danish friend, I do have a Danish friend, yes. said Köpenhauen. Kurt, what? Who, who, who? Köpenhauen. Kerpenhagen. Kerpenhagen. <laughs> yes, that's Copenhagen that's to Copenhagen us. Copenhagen for all Anglophones. <laughs> I will be outside of, say it one more time. Kerpenhagen. <laughs> Kerpenhagen. Uh, <laughs> on December, December, June 9th and 10th. Mm -hmm. June 9th, we're doing a kind of intro to some of the main themes of the theology of the body. And then all day, June 10th, we are doing, I am leading a reflection on. John Paul II's love and responsibility, the philosophical underpinnings of theology of the body. And he gets into the real nitty gritties of what is love? Uh, what, what do we often mistake for love? He says, if we look at what we often call love and we're honest about it, oftentimes it amounts to two people using each other. And he says, what we need to do in the male-female relationship is reintroduce love into love. So that's what we're calling the day, introducing love into love. Mm. If anybody out there listening to us is, or on YouTube here, if you are yeah. in that you know, area. You're traveling and this is just perfect timing for you. Yeah. It would be wonderful to we'll see you We'll have a link in the show notes of the podcast and in the description of the YouTube video. Great. Well, are you interested in a question now Let's from one it. of our, our patrons? Here we go. This is from a patron named Catherine. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. Thank you so much for using the gifts God has given you to share the joyful message of the theology of the body with the world. You are welcome, Catherine. Your podcast has explained so many questions I didn't even know that I had about how our bodies are not just biological, but also theological. She's been paying attention. That's right. That's good. I've recently been researching more into the lives of the saints. And I've come across many whose bodies have been said to be incorrupt mm -hmm. even many years after death. Can you explain more about this miracle and how it relates to theology of the body? I can explain how it relates to theology of the body. I can't explain the miracle, because <laughs> if you could explain the miracle, it wouldn't be a miracle. Mm. Um, but yes, it's, it's a sanctity is a matter of body and soul. We tend to think of um, holiness as merely something spiritual. Mm -hmm. But John Paul II says, holiness is what enables us to live the body fully. And holiness is to become a sincere gift to another, and we do that through the body. The ultimate act of holiness that, I mean, ultimate as in this is the peak expression of holiness ever expressed on planet Earth is Christ saying to his bride, this is my body given up for you. Mm -hmm. So holiness is a, is a you have, what you have is a holy 
person. Let's put it that way. Mm. Persons are holy. And a human person is a unity of body and soul. It's not just the soul that's holy. It's the person that's holy. And Thomas Aquinas says, the soul is not I. I am not merely my soul. I'm not a spiritual person trapped in a body. I'm a human person, and a human person is the marriage of body and soul. The separation of body and soul that happens at death is, is not natural. I mean, it's natural in the sense, if you're using that word like it happens to everybody, but it's not natural in the sense that it's in keeping with God's plan for human nature mm-hmm. to separate the body and the soul. And we have this destiny, not just of an immortal soul that will live forever with God, we believe in the resurrection of our bodies. Yeah. So this special grace that is given to certain saints, certainly not all saints, but certain saints where their bodies are dug up even years later, centuries later sometimes, and the body is has not decayed in the normal way that you would expect. This is a mark of that person's holiness. It's a mark of the integrity of body and soul. Uh, I'm reminded of the scripture that uh, you will not allow your beloved to see decay, right? That's in the Psalms of the Old Testament, mm-hmm. and that's often referred to as an Old Testament prophecy of Christ's resurrection. You will not allow your beloved to see decay, right? Um, or to see corruption would be another translation. So these saints whose bodies do not corrupt, it's a uh, it's it's part of that promise, that pledge of a future resurrection. And mm-hmm. I believe it's a reminder to us. If I were to venture a theory as to why does God do this for certain saints, I would say it's a reminder to us that our hope is not only that we live spiritually forever. Right? Every religion on the planet that has a vision of an afterlife believes that we continue in some spiritual way. But this is here I'm quoting from the Catechism, but how can we believe, the Catechism puts it in a question, how can we believe that this body so clearly mortal could rise to everlasting life? How could we believe that? Well, we believe it because it happened to Christ. Mm -hmm. And we also have hints of it or, or little foreshadowings of it, I believe, in these certain cases where saints' bodies are incorrupt. Yeah, and I think when I think about it, I I think about how um, the whole appreciation of saints is meant to encourage our faith. You know, it's meant to strengthen the faith of the body of Christ and remembering people whose lives have made a big impact allows their impact to reach more people when we uh, when we write about their lives or talk about them or. More recent people share photos or um, all of that. I think that an incorrupt body is also something that calls our attention to a person's life. Yes, so, yes. So that we can appreciate how deep their love for the Lord was when they lived and that they are in heaven now loving Him and longing for us to be there in that communion. So it's it it's a... Uh, honored by people, not because it's proof that this person is more holy than someone whose body decays normally, um, but just that it's one of the many ways that we can have our hearts lifted up towards the miraculous and the reality of things beyond the normal earthly realm, I think. Yeah, and something you just said there just sparked something in, in my thinking that 
we appreciate the saints because of how they love. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the that's the mark of a saint. But how they love is always in and through the body. Yeah. You'll remember our our friend, of course, Jackie Logue and her husband mm-hmm. Bill, who died of brain cancer years ago. Mm-hmm. And I often tell this story to my students mm-hmm. that when her husband died, she had well-meaning but very misguided friends telling her things. Oh, oh I got to rewind. Part of the story was when her husband died, she was haunted in the days after his burial, haunted by the thought that his body was decaying in the ground. Mm. And it kept her up at night, and, and it was a haunting thought to mm-hmm. her. And she had well-meaning but misguided friends who would say things to her like, but that's just his body. Mm. Don't worry about that. The soul lives forever. Mm-hmm. And she had a proper Catholic sensibility in the way she responded. And she said, but that's the body that loved me. Mm. And that's the body I loved. And yeah. it, that's the body through which we conceived all our children. Right. And it's rotting in the ground and it's tearing me apart. Mm. She's exactly right. That's what happens at death. We get torn apart. Mm. The body and the soul, the separation right. is, is not normal. It's not natural. I love uh, what Peter Kreef says. Um, He says, when the body and the soul separate at death, we have a freak. We have a monster. This is not, this is not normal. This is not, we have an obscenity, he said. Uh, It's, it is, it is obscene. This death is obscene. The separation of body and soul is obscene. And when he says we have a freak, we have a monster, what did he mean? He said, these are the things of which our, our horror movies are made. Mm. Ghosts and corpses. I always thought that was a fascinating insight. Why do ghosts and corpses populate our horror movies? Because the separation of body and soul is literally horrifying. The good news is that Christ conquered that horror by rising from the dead. And the way we get around, or the way we, we... the way we live with that horror that body and soul separate at death is not by pretending that the body doesn't matter and we're just spirits trapped in bodies and the body's a prison and we, we, liberate, we get liberated from the prison of the body when we die. That was a platonic thought from the philosopher Plato. Right. It's not a Christian thought. The, the way we overcome this horror is not by spiritualizing our personhood, but by opening the cry of our heart for everlasting life to the one who came in the flesh to grant us everlasting life in the flesh. Mm. Wendy, I cannot wait. <laughs> I mean, I have to wait. That's a funny expression, I cannot wait. Well, you have to. Um, but we know what we mean. I can't, I, I, I'm, the thought of embracing your glorified body mm with my glorified body. Yeah. I That is it's an awesome thought. Yeah. Do you remember that I recently sent you an article about um a foundress of a religious oh, yeah, yeah. order whose body was being moved yes. recently and found was to found to be incorrupt. So this is I think on people's minds a little bit right now this is so recent and she was um a nun who lived it all in the 20th century 
Um, she was an African American, mm-hmm. and her name was Wilhelmina Lancaster. Oh, can you tell that story about Wilhelmina? Oh, yeah. So there was a story I read in an article about her that um, she lived during a time when her order, um, that the order that she had joined as a young woman, um, stopped wearing habits and, uh, during, uh, you know, post-Vatican II, I guess. But she kept wearing her habit. She did not think it was a good move of the order. And someone, I think another member of her order, after some time, challenged her, are you going to keep wearing that thing? And and according to this uh, quote from a book about her life, it said that she said... <laughs> Yes, I am. My name is Will Hell Mina. I have a hell of a will, and I mean it. <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> Feisty nuns. Yeah, Woo. so that's that's a special one. <laughs> yeah, let me say also a word to Catherine. Catherine, thank you so much for supporting the work of the Theology of the Body Institute with your patronage. I hope you are taking advantage of all of the benefits of being a patron. Our next question is from Eustace. Hello, Eustace. Eustace asks, where is the line for the sin of lust? I used to struggle with pornography and masturbation addictions, but overcame those by the grace of God and the rosary. What I struggle with now is the almost lizard brain desire to gape at attractive women. Mm. It's been quite a while since I've done so and allowed lustful thoughts When it happens, the lustful thoughts definitely present themselves as temptations. So I know I need to move past this. But how does one overcome that desire to look at the beauty of a woman? That beauty is inherently good, but that uncontrollable urge for beauty cannot be satisfied by an attractive woman and can only be satisfied by God. How does one get to the point of finding satisfaction in the beauty of God? What a well-articulated question, which just has a gives us a beautiful window into his journey. Yeah, stages uh, of yeah, the journey. Stages right? of the journey. Yeah. Uh, Eustace, I'll say this to you: you're not meant to uh, overcome or conquer your attraction to beauty, mm-hmm. but to allow your attraction to beauty to be purified. I think that's a key distinction. It's it, in my mind when we say it. The way, what, can you read, find that line yeah. again where he said it He said, way? how does one overcome that desire to look at the beauty of a yes. woman? We shouldn't want to overcome the desire to behold beauty. We should rather want to overcome the desire to look at beauty in a lustful, uh, demeaning way, where we grasp at that beauty and mm-hmm. seek to take possession of it. Uh, even if only in our thoughts, right? Taking possession of it so that I can feed off it in a way that I'm actually treating another person as something less than a person. And what do we mean by person, right? A person, John Paul II says, is the kind of good that does not admit of being used, right? That's the the, the negative side is thou shalt not use, the positive side is thou shalt love. Mm-hmm. So the opposite of love here is not so much hatred. The opposite of love is treating another person as a means to an end. Right? Why do we feel instantly there's a violation involved if you were to see a human person on a leash? Mm. But there's no such violation if you see a dog on a leash. 
there's an immediate felt violation of one person having another person on a leash because it's a sign that that person holding the leash is asserting his will over another person. And what distinguishes a person from an animal is that we have our own will. Human persons have a will. And that will is, is a line that we cannot cross. It, and we feel it, we feel a violation of our humanity when someone tries to will for me. Mm. I remember some movie, I can't remember what movie it was. Uh, and I wish I could, because I've wanted to look up the scene and use it in a course. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anybody out there knows this movie scene, you can you can let us know. But it was this woman and a guy out on a date, or or maybe they had known each other for some time, and maybe they were even married. I don't know. And the man uh, looked at the menu, and the the waitress or waiter was there, and the 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 waiters went to motion to the woman, "What would you like?" And the man just jumped in and ordered for her, not in a loving way with a tenderness where he knows what his wife or girlfriend really loves and and wants to, you know, love and honor her there and and just do the ordering for her out of love. But it was a it was clearly an indication this was what is what was intended in the movie of this woman's being violated, mm. her will's being violated. Because this guy's jumping in and inserting, I'm, I'll order for her, I know what she wants. Da, 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 da. But it was Mm-hmm. He didn't know what she wanted, and he didn't right. even care what she wanted. Yeah, and he was can, just mowing her over. You can tell it in the scene. I yeah. bet she she looks yes, exactly. That way. She yeah. looked violated. Yeah, and she's like, "I'm done with this guy. I don't want to be with this guy anymore." And rightly, you know, mm. when those violations happen, we are rightly feel violated. Yeah. So lust is that kind of violation. Uh, what are the? Th- would you want? Here's a, maybe a little test of what's going on in your mind and your heart. Would you want the other person to know? the nature of your thoughts about that other person. Hmm. John Paul II says that love is transparent. It's not concerned if the other person were to know my thoughts, because the other person would be delighted to know that I'm loving that person. Um, But if I'm in there entertaining thoughts that this other is a sexual object for my gratification, and that person knew it, if that person is in in touch with his or her dignity, that person will know, I don't want to be thought of that way by this other person. Let me loop back around to the fundamental question here for Eustace. How can we know when we've crossed the line? John Paul II says, this is a science that cannot be learned only from books. Although we can read and learn and abstract knowledge of these things is important too, John Paul II says, but nonetheless, he says, It's a science of the heart. We have to become students of our hearts. Mm. He says, deep in the heart, we learn to discern the movements of our hearts. We learn to discern the difference between a a movement of my heart that is geared only towards using others and another movement of my heart that he says is aimed at appreciation, appreciation, appreciating the great riches of human sexuality and the beauty of the body according to God's original plan, right? And he says, although these movements of the heart can be mistaken for one another within a certain degree, sometimes it's, many times, it's very clear, this is not a motive of a deep appreciation of the original 
beauty and splendor of God's plan, but it's a usurial attitude where I'm, I'm wanting to take, I'm wanting to feed mm-hmm. in a way that treats that person as less than a person. But there are times where, just as Eustace is saying, what is the line? Because uh, sometimes it's not clear. And Eustace, you're right, sometimes it's not clear. But John Paul goes on, he says, nonetheless, we have been called by Christ to acquire a mature and deep evaluation of the different motives of our hearts. And then he says, this task can be carried out, and it is truly worthy of the human person, truly worthy of man to carry out that task. Now, I have been a man who has been taking this task very seriously since, well, since I first came to a real faith in the Lord in 1990. Like, that's when I first really, like, diligently said, I want to make this journey of distinguishing the movements of mm-hmm. my heart. And it's a long journey. And and I have been I have been surprised at many turns to recognize how deep the disorder goes in my heart. So you'll remember this, Wendy. We are f- I was five years into the journey. You and mm-hmm. I were were dating. Five years into that journey of really taking this seriously, discerning those movements of the heart, and I was feeling so liberated in my love for you that I didn't want to dominate you in a controlling way. I didn't want to use you. I didn't want to just push your buttons to get what I wanted out of you, which is the way I sadly used to operate in previous relationships. And... I, f- I felt like I had arrived at the victory over lust. That's a beautiful thing. And it, it was, I mean, there was a victory. Yeah. Thanks be to God, there, there was, there yeah. really was. But <laughs> the mistake that I made was thinking, top of the mountain, I'm there, I've conquered this in my, oh my goodness. Right. The layers of our brokenness go deep, deep, mm-hmm. deep, deep in our being. And as, as your friend and mine, Father Jim, uh, my spiritual director says, Christopher, make peace with the journey. Mm-hmm. And here's what it's gonna be. Doorway of crap, you gotta work through that crap. It's gonna lead you through a doorway to glory. And then there's gonna be another doorway of crap, you gotta work through it, and that's gonna lead you to another doorway of glory. Doorway of crap, doorway of glory. Doorway of crap, doorway of glory. That's the whole journey. Like you never, st- there's always another doorway of crap to deal with. <laughs> so we- All I right, thought, Eustace. I- <laughs> I, I thought I had passed through that doorway of crap, and now I was on the other side. Uh, how how uh, ignorant and unknowing I was, right? There's always more. And there's this great line in the catechism. I forget what saint the catechism is quoting. But the catechism says that the journey of the interior life, the journey of purification, we, we, we do, we make great progress, but we go from beginning to beginning, from beginning to new beginning. When we make a, a, a step forward in a journey of purification, we've, we've started somewhere, now we're somewhere new, but now we're at a new beginning, and we have to keep going. So I actually want to say something yes, about his final question was about finding satisfaction in the beauty of yes. God. Because I think that really, it's, it's such a beautiful question, and I think he's getting at something that can help him Absolutely. right now. Can you re-read, reread that section? Yes. He says, um, 
that beauty of a woman is inherently good, but the uncontrollable urge for beauty cannot be satisfied by an attractive woman. It can only be satisfied by God. How does one get to the point of finding satisfaction in the beauty of God? And just something I feel like sharing with our listeners is that we, as you were describing, being on a journey, we don't know a lot about where Eustace is, but he's shared a little bit about recent developments in his life. And I do think that being on that journey with the Lord, like those very fresh experiences of God's grace transforming your heart is a really good source of kind of a a renewal of our thoughts, renewal of our mind, as St. Paul talks about. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, Romans 12. That and in theology of the body is so helpful here because we recognize through theology of the body how the beauty of a person's body reveals the beauty of that person's deep inner being, yes, but it yes. also reveals something of God, yes, that, yes. both. And so as we are appreciating the beauty of another human being, all people, men and women, any age, can experience that deeper renewal of our minds to recognize this Beauty is a sign of a real person worthy of love, and it's a sign of God's goodness. She or he is a sign. And thanking the Lord for this reminder of, say, of the goodness of the church. Just, you know, a, a woman maybe specifically can remind us of the goodness of the church. Sometimes for me, if I have you know, an attraction to a man, I sometimes will thank the Lord for the... Wait a minute. You have attraction to men other than me, Wendy? What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. This is not a surprise. This no, is no, not no. It's a, okay. I, that was a joke. It's a joke. Yeah. To thank the Lord for this reminder of His goodness, you know, that this person is a sign of Christ's goodness, and to thank Him for His goodness Amen. and for reminding me of it. And it's very peace-giving. Yeah. And it, it removes, it's a thought that is peace-giving to our own hearts. And like you said, if it were transparent, it is right. no offense There's to no the offense other person. The other, not only yeah. is it no offense, it builds the other up. Yeah. Oftentimes at Mass, if I catch myself watching the people going up to communion, mm-hmm. instead of just thinking mindlessly about who is this person or that person or whatever, mm-hmm. I will, I'll try to say to myself, and this is similar to what you were saying, Wendy, if it's a guy, I'll say... You're a sign of Christ. And if it's a woman, you're a sign of the church. And I just find my heart mm. going, Christ, church, Christ, church. Wow. Christ, Christ, church, church. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's it's like a retraining of the muscle memory of my heart mm. out of a place of objectification or evaluation. And we do it unconsciously, like, oh, she's cute. Oh, she's not. Oh, he looks like a j- jerk. You know, we do we like th- this weird things. We unco- if we're not paying attention to our thoughts, they go not helpful places. Right. So to retrain the muscle memory of my heart to say Christ Church, Christ Church, is really liberating. Mm. And I have just a couple more thoughts for Eustace here. Mm-hmm. The the distinction he's asking: What is the distinction? Yeah. Right here, I think is a very clear distinction between love and lust. Authentic eros, chaste eros, which is the attraction to the true, the good, and the beautiful, right? The the longing of the heart for the true, the good, and the beautiful. 
authentic, chaste eros seeks to sacrifice myself for the other. Lust is exactly the opposite. I'm sacrificing the other for the sake of myself. Mm. Right? A chaste eros will say, I am willing to sacrifice whatever inclination to pleasure here I might have. I'm going to sacrifice that to uphold the goodness and dignity of the other. Whereas lust is saying, I'm willing to sacrifice the goodness and dignity of the other mm-hmm. to please myself. So that, I think, is the clear like yeah. line of distinction. And we can, when we feel, and it's not if, it's when we feel the inclination to sacrifice the goodness and dignity of the other for the sake of myself, that's concupiscence. That's Concupiscence is the fancy word the church uses to talk about our disordered desires. But remember those words of Jesus, so important. In the beginning it was not so. The reason they were naked without shame in the beginning is because they didn't have disordered desires. The inclination of Eros was not to sacrifice the other for the good of myself. It was to sacrifice myself for the good of the other. That's why they were naked without shame. Shame comes into the picture precisely when Eros becomes inverted. And now it's, I'm willing to sacrifice your good for my pleasure. And there's shame in that. We, we know there's something wrong with us when we do that. And that shame is the proper response when we do that. So there's the line. And, and then I'll say this about, can you read his last line again about beauty and, and beauty of God? And Yes. How does one get to the point of finding satisfaction in the beauty of God? How does one get to the point of finding satisfaction in the beauty of God? This reminds me of a verse from the Old Testament. It struck me just a couple months ago when it was in the cycle of readings. I'm like, Oh my gosh, how come I've never like chewed on this and prayed on this and seen Mm -hmm. this before? But it's the story of those two elders who lust after the wife of whoever, whatever leader in whatever town, but her name was Susanna. Mm -hmm. And these two men, they know she goes for this daily walk to take a bath in the court, in the garden of their Lord or whatever. And and they hide in the bushes and they're going to rape her. Mm. And then they're going to blame her for it and put her to death. Um, and the scripture says, this is such an insightful, inspired understanding of what lust is. He said, they, they saw her beauty and they refused to raise their eyes to heaven. Mm. Boom, that's lust. Because what is beauty supposed to do? Raise our eyes to heaven. We have to go on the journey from the sign to the thing signified. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's go to the thesis statement of the theology of the body. The body and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and the divine. Boom. Ultimate beauty, capital B beauty, God himself. The only way that beauty can be manifested is through this physical world. The only way it can be made visible, right? To to make something visible is literally to make it physical. The body and only the body is capable of making visible what is invisible. The only thing that makes visible the invisible capital B beauty of God is the small b beauty of male and female. He created them and he blessed them and called them to be fertile. Now, when John Paul says body here and only the body, that's inclusive of all of physical creation that culminates in the human body, right? Of course, a beautiful sunset 
makes visible something of the mystery of God. Of course, yes. a beautiful tree or a beautiful flower or a bird song or a starlit night, all of that makes visible something of the beauty of God. But we, the human body, the human person, is the culmination of all of that beauty. It's all summed up, the Catechism says. The beauty of all of creation, says the Catechism, is summed up in the human body. There's nothing more beautiful than the human body. But it's a small b beauty. And Eustace is absolutely right to say, because it's small b beauty, it can never satisfy that 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 yearning, that ache for, a, for infinite beauty that I'm describing as capital B beauty. Mm. But the Catechism says the, the journey of the Christian life is a journey from the sign to the reality signified. So the sign is the body. The reality signified is God himself. And the way we go on that journey is by when small b beauty awakens a yearning, for, for, for a beauty that lasts. If I were to project onto you, Wendy, which I've, in my failings, I've done, and it's wounded you, but we're growing and we're learning, and I'm being, thanks be to God, as I stay on the journey, more and more liberated. But if I project onto you my desire for a beauty that doesn't fade, that doesn't change, that is infinite and eternal, then I'm not gonna like that you're aging. I'm not gonna like that you're getting wrinkles. I'm not gonna like that your hair's going gray. And, and if you do that to me, you're not gonna like it that I have these age spots on my face and I have a jangly chin that I didn't used to have. And <laughs> I have all this gray hair that I didn't use. Because that's a sign that your beauty and my beauty is fading and changing, right? And I would be really mad at you that your beauty's fading and changing. And I would demand that you get facelifts and I would demand that or you Or just get, replace me. Or just replace you with a younger hottie, right? <laughs> and why, why do men who've been married for 30 years divorce their wives and go marry some 23-year-old? What the heck's going on there? It's idolatry. It's treating the small B beauty. It's treating the sign of capital B beauty as if it were the fulfillment of the yearning for infinite beauty. That person is not going on the journey from the sign to the reality signified. That person, just like those guys in the Old Testament, is locking in on temporal beauty and failing to raise their eyes mm -hmm. to heaven. Mm -hmm. Right. So the journey Eustace is, is asking me to comment on is precisely the journey from the sign to the reality signified. Mm -hmm. If I'm going on that journey, and this loops us back to the previous question about um, the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And, and what did I say? I can't wait yeah. to embrace you in your glorified body with my glorified body. This is the hope. You and I are going to have glorified bodies. Mm. If that's real, then you and I can endure aging and creaky bones and arthritis and whatever else happens in our demise, wrinkly skin and gray hair and crooked backs and whatever else in hope of the resurrection. And what is the resurrection? It's when human bodies actually do get to participate in the infinite beauty of God without spot, wrinkle, blemish, or any such thing as scripture says. Until then, we must go on this journey where we, do, where we allow the genuine desire of our hearts for infinite beauty to be awakened by finite beauty. That's what sacramentality is. 
right? This YouTube channel, or at least my, my shows on our Theo Theology of the Body Institute YouTube channel, we call them the sacramental lens, because I'm trying to invite everybody into this vision of seeing the world sacramentally. What does that mean? It means allowing small b beauty, the human body or anything else, to take us on a journey to capital B beauty. So this is, this is, the catechism says that one of the dangers of a sacramental world is the constant threat of idolizing the beauty of a sacramental world. Treating small b beauty as if it were capital B beauty, that's idolatry. Small b beauty can awaken our desire for infinite beauty. Not only can it, it's meant to. God designed it to do so. But small b beauty was never meant to satisfy the desire for capital B beauty. It's an invitation on a pilgrimage. It's an invitation to travel upstream through created beauty to beauty's source. This is what the saints call the journey of the interior life. Mm -hmm. uh, brother, you're already on it, Eustace, and, and I just invite you, keep going. Brother, keep going. In the <laughs> theology of the body, uh, if you don't know this already, if you haven't taken a course with us, all of our courses are designed to help people on this journey. So check out the link. If you're listening on the podcast, check out the link in the show notes. If you're watching here on YouTube, check out the link in the description below and sign up for TOB for free, right? Go to that link and we will send you three free sessions to our Theology of the Body Level 1 course. And I just want to expose you to that sacramental vision and maybe you'll want to take the, the level one course, and then maybe you'll want to take the level two and three and go through all of our courses. Uh, mm. That's why we exist, is to help people mm -hmm. to journey from the sign to the reality signified. Yes. Our next question is from an anonymous listener. Hi, Christopher and Wendy. Listening to your podcast has been very important to me in every aspect of my life. I'm 28, married, and we have two beautiful daughters. My question is, how did you live your marriage with openness to the number of children God wanted to give you? I really want to trust in God and His plan for our marriage and family, but sometimes I struggle with the possibility of always being pregnant. Mm. I know about respecting my cycle if we think it's not time to have another baby, but where is the line between our will and God's will? Another one of those where is the line questions. That's true, that phrase. How about that? Oh. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's, it's, a, it's such an honest question. It, 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 well, let me put it this way. It is an honest question, but more what I want to say is it reveals such an honest heart. It's somebody who's saying, I really want to follow God's will, and sometimes it's fuzzy. Mm. And I want to say, welcome to the human race. Yeah, it is fuzzy sometimes because our motives are mixed up. And the Catechism says that for all of us, and I don't care if you were John Paul II or Mother Teresa or John of the Cross or Catherine of Siena, for all of us in this life until the end of time, until we are fully purified, there's going to be wheat and weeds growing together in our hearts. Mm. And we have to make a certain peace with that. And I don't mean peace with it as in you're off the hook from growing in purification. No, 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 no. It, it, it spurs us on to deeper purifications. But just as I was saying, 
those never end in this life. Yeah. The doorway of crap, doorway of glory, doorway of crap, doorway of glory. <laughs> Keep going. So this question, like the previous one, is a recognition. I want to do God's will. I'm looking at my heart. Yeah. And I'm recognized, recognizing their mixed motives in there. Yep. Every human heart, if you're mm -hmm. honest, if you claim you're looking in your heart and you see no mixed motives whatsoever, no, not a single weed, it's just all wheat, well, that's proof that you're not all wheat, because <laughs> that's pride. That is a lie. You've believed some lie, and that's a weed. So you got weeds just like the rest of us. Mm. So let's be at peace with the fact that there are weed and weeds growing together, not in the sense of I'm off the hook, but let's not be surprised when we recognize mixed motives. That said, certainly we can draw from our own married life and I was just having a conversation, I don't even know if I shared this with you, Wendy, I was just having a conversation with our daughter, Grace. Uh, remember that night, uh, everybody went in the house, we were having a fire in our fire pit, mm -hmm. and Grace and I stayed up yeah. chatting away. And she was asking various questions about how many kids we have and what kind of discernment we went through, And because mm. she's number five, and we were mm -hmm. talking about her being the caboose, and <laughs> and... I was so delighted to share with her the stories of our discernment at that time. And we had gotten to the point, we had three children. I, you might have another story to tell from our own experience, but this is the one that comes to my mind. We had three children, and we were prayerfully considering a fourth. And you're a natural family planning instructor, and we had always understood the way your cycle worked, and not that it was always simple and easy. Sometimes there were difficulties there, but we were absolutely committed to honoring your cycle, honoring our fertility, and a practice that we brought into our marriage right from the start was whenever we came together as husband and wife in our marital union to pray, Lord, if it is your will, let there be life. If it is your will, let there be life. So that was always our disposition. And even when we knew you were naturally infertile and we'd come together, we'd still pray, Lord, if it's your will, let there be life. And it also, it set us in the right disposition also when we were yearning for a child. Our third took how long? Like a year. A year, over a year of trying to conceive. Mm. And every month when your period came, the sadness was there. And uh, we were really eagerly desiring a third child, and that was certainly an education for me. But when we would come together, knowing it's peak fertile day, there's still no guarantees. Mm -hmm. And all we could pray and honestly give ourselves to was the prayer, Lord, if it is your will, let there be life. Right. So that's a prayer to pray, I'm saying, whether you're desiring to avoid a, a conception or to have a conception. You're placing it in God's hands. He's the Lord and giver of life. Mm -hmm. So that's what's required of a husband and wife, whenever they come together, to place their fertility entirely in God's hands. God is the master of a woman's cycle, so there's nothing incongruent in a, in a naturally infertile time in saying, Lord, if it's your will, let there be life. What is your will? It's going to be manifested in the way he made your body and my body and the coming together of our bodies. I'm getting sidetracked now. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> sort of the number of children, the number of children. Oh, and right. maybe and reasons for avoiding or right, right, right. spacing. Mm -hmm. So we were prayerfully discerning, would we have number four? And we we had 
a couple years there where we were thinking maybe it was just going to be three children. And the demands of our lives, the financial situation, uh, all kinds of things, all kinds of factors went into that. But then we realized our finances were easing up. Um, we had our third was growing and we were emotionally more ready to take on another child and uh, and the Lord, the Lord, we were less strict in our practice of abstaining during the fertile time. And thanks be to God, number four came along and mm -hmm. it was a joyful celebration. And then two years later, number five came along and it was a joyful celebration. And we, we look back at that. And I think this is what I was saying to Grace around the, the fire pit that a couple weeks ago was, thank you, God, that we kept discerning. Because if we had just latched on to what we thought for a time that we were only going to have three, we have a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old right now that who wouldn't exist. And neither you nor I could possibly, or our, the rest of our children, or all the people who have been blessed by these two children, we can't fathom that possibility of them not existing. So my, my just advice to this questioner would be, keep the question on the the table like don't think done over already discerned that keep it an open question revisit it maybe you know yeah for the next year uh we need to abstain for x y and z reasons during the fertile time it might there might be a time or a season in which you have a definitive no we're not going to try for another but don't ever just say absolutely no way uh-uh keep discerning. And, and I remember how this came up in the last couple of years when your cycle started to become irregular. And, and I started, it was just to my surprise, I was like, oh my gosh, maybe we should try for another one. <laughs> you know, even at this older age, mm -hmm. uh, the Lord has not blessed us with another one and probably never will based on our age at this point. But yeah, keep the question on the table. What would be your thoughts, Wendy? Yeah, I think I can recall early, early in our marriage that it felt like an unfamiliar task to discern this. It, yeah, it was an unfamiliar task. You know, we've, we learn things over time in our lives, and there is a, a, a time spent learning to discern. Right. And because of that, unfamiliarity, I think I was, my, I had these sort of antenna that would perk up when, when a, a couple ahead of us in mm -hmm. the family planning journey would speak about their decisions. I wanted to know their reasons. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know their mm -hmm. thinking because it was helping me to make sense of our discernment. I can remember specifically hearing a husband uh, and they had I don't remember, maybe eight children, but he spoke of some of the spacing and he said something like, pregnancy is very hard on my wife and she needed time to recover. And then he just went on in this conversation. But I remember like holding that, like, okay, that, that must be something they talked about. That must be something they realized about their relationship that or their experience that helped them in their discernment to avoid pregnancy. And I needed that kind of input from other couples. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I think I hear in this question a certain like, what about what about yeah. you two? What what did you, you know, my my antenna are up. What yeah, what, yeah. what what things did you look at? And 
certainly in this question, um, something she said was a fear of being always pregnant. Well, like, look at that. Like, it, it might be just a sign of your own experience of pregnancy, which is certainly a pregnancy is a gift, but it can have varying Trials. degrees of challenge yeah. depending on the person. And so that's the point where you're looking at what is our experience or what are our resources as a couple. And I think that has been, you know, part of the the learning process is to be able to gradually better understand what our our mission is from the Lord in our family, in our home, in our marriage, and in the wider world, and what resources has the Lord blessed us with to enable us to either welcome another child or to avoid that. It, it's been yeah, it's just been a journey of knowing ourselves yes, better. Yes. And part of how we learn about ourselves is through times of suffering. You know, maybe this person who has two children, maybe they're close in age and and that could can produce some suffering because it can be demands that are kind of maybe sometimes they feel like too much or yeah. they stretch us or they involve a lot of sacrifice or um just all kinds of factors but those suffering times also we're not far from the lord he's so close to us in our sufferings and wanting to assure us that he's with us but also that He's helping us to gain wisdom in our understanding of our unique relationship and our unique abilities and to feel a certain freedom not to overly compare ourselves to other families, yes, yes. That's a trap. other couples. You know, what if, you know, everybody I know has at least this many children or a child, you know, when they are this age or those kinds of comparisons and the Lord really wants us to come to a place of peace in our knowing of one another and his guiding our unique marriage and mission in this yes, world. Yes, and accepting peacefully our own limitations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You looked at me like I was not thinking clearly when a couple years ago I said, should we try for another? You looked at me like, you've been married to me all this time, <laughs> you still do not know me. <laughs> Which is not to say a lack of love for babies and children right. at all. That is not it. Right. Has no, to do more I, with I don't know anybody. Outside limitations. I don't know anybody who has more love for babies than you yeah. who I've ever met in my whole life. <laughs> but I was not. Yeah, there was a there was a f failure to understand your heart there. That, <laughs> that this is our story. Yeah. And I need to know you and you need to know me and we need to mm -hmm. be honest and open about all of these all of these things and not base our decision on looking over there at the Joneses or the Smiths or the right. Kavanaugh's or whatever anybody else's last name might be and say <laughs> and saying, "Well, we'll do it like that or we should do it like that or we right. should be more like them or no, what is the Lord asking of right. you as a right. unique totally unique, unrepeatable couple mm -hmm. with your own set of circumstances, limitations, gifts, challenges, etc. And I'll just say I did find it kind of cute and to see that spark of desiring a baby in you. It was attractive to me. I don't want well, you to think nice. I I looked at you with a like a judgment on no, that. No, no, I don't think that. It's just that uh But I do I the bigger anytime context. you want to tell me you're looking at me with love and attraction and you have a spark. <laughs> That's good I'm news. I'm all for it. That's good right. news for me. I'll take it.
touches a tender place in my heart. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to our episode this week, whether you are on YouTube or whether you are just listening through your typical podcast platform. We encourage you to keep the questions coming. And if you were blessed by this episode, would you please hit that share button and send this out to somebody else who needs to know what we've shared today or may be blessed by it. And please know it in your bones. You are an indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.